Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, Chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. And I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to introduce Nancy Unger, um, well-known author, has a new history out um, about uh, a not so well-known wife of a very famous politician, progressive politician from Wisconsin in the early early 20th century. You know, when she, she wrote to me, or, or, or I, got, I got the message from the club that she could come to San Francisco and talk about it, I said, that's great. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm from Wisconsin. And it, this name is extremely famous throughout Wisconsin politics. Uh, it really, really gave a big tenor to what, what Wisconsin was. I mean, California had a fairly similar background at the same time, put it at big universities, you know, really, you know, uh, that was all the influence of the progressive ideas of trying to educate people and move society along and so on. And, and those great universities, University of Wisconsin, Michigan, and, and California, I think the three main public universities were all res- you know, the responsibility of the thinkers uh, from the early 20th century, of which um, Bell LaFollette is one of them. So Nancy, uh, thank you very much for coming and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. Well, thank you. Uh, Thank you very much um, uh, for that very nice introduction. I am delighted to be back at the Commonwealth Club. I really want to thank George Hammond for facilitating this talk. He he soft-pedaled a little bit. I actually approached him and said, um, now I've written this book about this woman from Wisconsin, and I told him all about it, and I went in great detail about my credentials and so forth. And he wrote back and said, I'm from Wisconsin. You, you, you had me at, I'm from, I got somebody from Wisconsin, we're good. So, so in any event, um, I also want to thank all of you for taking time out of your very busy lives to, uh, to come here this evening. I really, I really appreciate it. So I have um, written this brand new biography of Belle LaFollette, and I am dying to talk with you about her as a representative of the many women who have contributed significantly to American politics, even long before women had the vote. Hillary Clinton may well be the first female president, and if she is, she will deserve the credit for it. But as Clinton herself acknowledges, it took a lot of work by a lot of previous women and some men to compellingly make the case that women are capable of political leadership, even at the highest levels. Belle LaFollette was one of those women. And as we look forward uh, to the 2016 elections, we have a lot to learn from this great American, and not only about politics. Lesson one, 
don't make the mistake of underestimating a woman just because she was first known as a political wife. Although the New York Times eulogized Belle Case LaFollette in 1931 as perhaps, quote, the most influential of all American women who have come to do with public affairs in this country, she faded quickly from popular memory. And, and when she is recalled, it's usually in relation to her husband and sons. And I am afraid that I contributed to this approach to her in my biography of her husband fighting Bob LaFollette. And I must say in my own defense that he started it. He, <laughs> this, this minimization of his wife's accomplishment began with this great progressive reform giant famously calling her my wisest and best counselor, which she was. Bob openly deferred to Bell's judgment throughout his storied professional life as district attorney, three-term congressman, lawyer, three-term governor of Wisconsin, and most significantly during his 19 years in the U.S. Senate. According to their son-in-law, playwright George Middleton, except John Adams with his Abigail, no man in public life was to have so equal a mate. Books, articles, essays, a short film, and plays, including a full-length musical, all hail Belle LaFollette as the little woman behind the great man. Only a few go so far to recognize her as an important reformer in her own right, and no account, until now, reveals the depth and range of her interests, her ambitions and activism, and the contributions that she made to meaningful progressive reform. So lesson two, don't believe everything you read or hear. Upon her death in 1931, newspapers across the nation praised Belle LaFollette not for her accomplishments, but for her selflessness, her willingness to remain out of the public eye, her contentment in eschewing a career for herself in favor of carrying out a higher calling, that of wife and mother. She had a masculine mind, one backhanded accolade conceded, but then quickly praised her for being essentially feminine and maternal. Another tribute concluded, hers is an interesting career for those women who of necessity must remain in the background. Famed journalist Lincoln Steffens, a family friend who really, really should have known better, painted LaFollette as a self-sacrificing woman who consciously surrendered her own ambitions. Quote, she could act, but she was content to beget action and actors. She played herself the woman's part. She sat in the gallery in the Congress or at home with the children and the advisors. She could but she did not often make the speeches or do the deeds. Well, this helpmate behind the scenes assessment has come to dominate the historical record, but in reality, Belle LaFollette exhibited considerable political leadership. Although she and her husband worked together to promote the many progressive goals they shared, she was far from being merely his assistant. She held no elected office, and could not even cast a ballot until she was 61 years old. 
Yet she overcame her natural shyness to wield tremendous influence as a journalist and a public speaker. Activities she took on not only out of idealism, but because her family needed the money. All those who joined Lincoln Steffens in identifying her primarily as what he called the victorious mother did her a grave disservice. She did, in truth, make the speeches and do the deeds, and the nation improved because she did. So lesson three, don't buy into tired ideas about gender or anything else. Born Belle Case in 1859, she grew up in the farming community of Baraboo, Wisconsin, where her commitment to feminist principles was cemented at a very young age. In her experience, men and women were both so indispensable to the success of farm life that few couples quibbled over whose work was more important. As she later put it, quote, while traditions and laws fixing the legal disabilities of the inferior status of women prevailed, women's great practical usefulness and highly developed judgment placed them, for all practical purposes, on an equal footing with men. Such a perspective was consistent with her family's religious views. When her mother, Mary Case, heard Anna Howard Shaw lecture at the family's free Congregationalist church promoting women's right to vote, she was captivated by the words of this pioneering minister and physician. Mary Case later told her daughter that she felt, quote, quite indignant that women did not have the same rights as men. And Bell's brother agreed, stating matter-of-factly, I do not see any reason why I should vote if Bell does not. Lesson four, be fearless and challenge authority. Belle LaFollette refused to accept the deferential, meek role assigned to girls. A friend recalled that young Belle Case, quote, frequently discomfited her teachers and fellow pupils by questioning and challenging things that were taught and accepted by others. She was fearless in insisting on things being understood and being worthwhile before she would accept them. Her years as a student at the University of Wisconsin fueled her fearlessness. As one professor recalled Miss Case, with her eagerness for knowledge and her readiness to pay the hard price, uh, the, pay the high price of hard work, profited to the full by the university's opportunities. Lesson five, remain your own person. Belle LaFollette's classmate, Bob, Belle Case's classmate, Bob LaFollette, pursued her avidly. It was at her insistence that their engagement remain a secret. And Bob grew increasingly frustrated when Belle seemed far more interested in pursuing her career rather than planning a life with him. Only after Belle completed two years of teaching did she marry Bob on New Year's Eve in 1881 in a ceremony conducted by a Unitarian minister who honored the bride's request that the word obey be omitted from the marriage vows. Lesson six, stop wasting your time. Eight months and 10 days after their wedding, because she was very efficient, Belle <laughs> gave birth to the first of their four children. Although Belle Follett said, the supreme experience in life is motherhood, she also said, there is no 
inherent conflict between a mother's taking good care of her children, developing her own talents, and continuing to work. Even when her children were small, La Follette refused to waste her time on the activities that most people assume should take up the day of a middle-class wife and mother. Belle Follett believed in, quote, simplicity and ease in dress, furnishings, even food, asking, what custom could be more barbarous than a 10-course dinner? <laughs> she advocated, quote, less kinds of food, fewer courses, less work. Lesson seven, stop apologizing for not wasting your time. Belle LaFollette rejected the expectation that women would cling to outmoded conventions at the same time that men flocked to the new conveniences that made their lives easier and more efficient. As the telephone came into public use, for example, she found it absurd that women were criticized as both lazy and extravagant for telephoning in their grocery orders, while men were praised for their efficiency in transacting business over the phone. Why is it, she asked sardonically, that those who are most deeply convinced that woman's place is in the home are most concerned when women stay at home and telephone for supplies instead of going to the market? <laughs> Following the advent of the typewriter, she complained, women apologize for a typewritten personal letter um, as though it were an offense, even though deciphering their handwriting is the most nerve-wracking process. She believed that women should embrace any innovations that might spare them from unnecessary labor. To those who bemoaned the loss of women's personal touch, she responded in favor of preserving women's time, health, and energy. Quote, many precious associations with the homemade and the handmade have necessarily been sacrificed to the greater gain. Lesson eight, be comfortable and guard your health. <laughs> Belle Follette further defied convention by abandoning stays and corsets for more comfortable, looser-fitting garments, and she urged other women to do the same. She noted with some disgust, the man who said women ought not to vote as long as they cannot fasten their own gowns made the best anti-suffrage argument I've ever heard. It is certainly humiliating that we submit to tyrannies of dress as we do. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at Facebook.com forward slash Progressive Voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at Facebook.com forward slash Progressive Voices. 
When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. La Follette reserved special scorn for the time women were encouraged to waste bemoaning their inability to live up to unrealistic bodily ideals. Although she struggled to keep her own weight in check, she strove not to obsess about it, but instead just to focus on remaining fit. So in 1912, La Follette still routinely ran three miles before breakfast. And in 1914, at the age of 55, the Washington Post celebrated her scaling of Mount Arasu, a 12,000-foot volcano in Costa Rica. Lesson nine, involve yourself in the larger world. La Follette's always passionate belief in, quote, the growing desire of women of leisure to employ themselves worthily and to share in the work of the world was reinforced in 1911 by the publication of Olive Schreiner's feminist treatise, Woman and Labor. La Follette viewed it as, quote, like an epic poem, majestic, powerful, and thrilling. Schreiner described women who lived empty lives and were wholly dependent upon their husbands' incomes as parasitic, a term La Follette would use repeatedly in her demands that women be allowed equal opportunities and useful occupations. Early in their marriage, Belle so enjoyed helping Bob with his legal studies that she took up the law course as well, becoming, in 1885, the first woman to graduate from the University of Wisconsin Law School. A passion that was not shared by the young couple was life in the nation's capital once Bob was elected to Congress in 1888. To the query, what do Washington women talk about, Belle LaFollette complained, all together, all together, too much about the weather. An exceeding graciousness and desire to please pervades every function, like having all the meals only dessert. She tartly reminded her sisters in Washington's official life, quote, we are not supposed to belong to the butterfly and parasitic class. Lesson 10, recognize that the personal is political. Belle LaFollette urged all women to start recognizing that problems they thought of as personal were in fact political and therefore required women's political activism. Quote, how much we pay for coal, food, and clothing is very largely determined by the control of natural resources, the tariff, the distribution of tax, and by the regulation of the great private monopolies and freight rates. These are women's issues. LaFollette strenuously opposed uh, her husband's plans to begin a magazine in 1909. Once the die was cast, however, she devoted herself to making La Follette's magazine a meaningful voice of progressivism. That magazine is published still today as The Progressive. 
In an article entitled Foolishness, she railed against the narrow range of superficial topics others deemed suitable for women readers. She concluded, let's fool these men publishers and put our time on the world's events. In countless columns in the magazine's home and education pages, Bella Follett introduced, defined, expanded, celebrated, and promoted progressive reforms. Women readers responded with gratitude, and other journalists celebrated her innovative approach. Celine Harmon of the Cincinnati Enquirer noted, one of the cleverest and most readable women's pages in the country is edited by Belle Case LaFollette. She is probably the first editor of a woman's department to go on a strike against the conventional formulas for hair dye and accepted recipes for beauty. LaFollette, marveled Harmon, is always independent and fearless in her expression of opinion. In 1911, the North American Press Syndicate engaged LaFollette to provide brief articles for syndication six days a week. Her series, Thought for the Day, covered topics including suffrage, economics, dress, children, women's work, and health, and appeared in 57 newspapers in more than 20 states. Fight for what is right, even if it violates time-worn traditions. In addition to the standard slate of progressive goals, including labor protection, natural resource conservation, and tariff and tax reform, Bella Follett advocated a wide range of less conventional innovations. She supported the right of a woman to not take her husband's name upon marriage. She promoted the Montessori School of System of Education. She opposed corporal punishment. Uh, she supported sex education. Sex education. She saved special ire for capital punishment, which she termed, quote, a survivor of barbarism, whose existence is contrary to the best thought and practice of modern civilization. She also, according to her youngest child, ultimately became an agnostic. Although both LaFollette's peppered their speeches and writings with religious imagery, they did not attend church, which is quite unusual for a U.S. senator and his family. To protect her husband's reputation, however, in this one area, Bell bent rather than freely acknowledged the truth. Bob delighted in telling family friends that as Bell guided a wealthy couple uh, from Bob's home district through Washington, D.C., they asked point blank what church the LaFollettes attended. Bell, quote, told them that we attended the Congregational Church oftener than any other one in Washington which was technically not a lie, Bell rationalized, as a minister we had known well had preached in the Congregational Church one Sunday, and we went to hear him. <laughs> Bell LaFollette advocated cleaner railroad cars and depots and schedules designed to shorten layovers. She also proposed postponing presidential inaugural ceremonies until April, writing in 1912, must we go on forever? Suffering the inconvenience of dates so badly adjusted to our present-day life just because they were written to the Constitution over 100 years ago? In this way, she saw women's lack of political experience as working to their favor, as they were not conditioned to accept these kinds of outmoded traditions. Lesson 12. Meaningful change almost always requires persistence. In 1930... 
the National League of Women's Voters honored 71 women, including La Follette, for their service to the League and to the American Women's Suffrage Association. When her name was inscribed on a bronze tablet housed in the National Headquarters in Washington, D.C., La Follette protested that she did not deserve such an honor. Yet her contemporary, Alice Paul, called La Follette, quote, the most consistent supporter of equal rights of all the women of her time. And in a 1912 story on suffrage, one New York Times headline declared simply, Mrs. La Follette is leader. Looking back on the battle she waged for, Wisconsin, for suffrage in Wisconsin that year, La Follette admitted, well, yes, I spoke seven days a week in succession, usually three or four times a day, sometimes six or eight. During one 12-day tour, she gave 31 speeches in 14 different counties. Lesson 13, be able to compellingly articulate your political goals. La Follette marched in the Great Suffrage Parade in New York City on May 4, 1912. Less than a year later, she testified before the U.S. Senate Committee on Women's Suffrage. She testified that granting women the vote was, quote, a simple matter of common sense. You know how Lincoln defined government at Gettysburg. Ours is the government of the people, by the people, for the people. And are not women people? According to the National Magazine, Mrs. Robert La Follette made a remarkable and forcible address, and the audience hung upon her words. Congress, however, did not grant women the vote. Early in the first term of the Wilson administration, Bella Follett was a member of a contingent of suffrage advocates that met with the president. And although Wilson listened respectfully, they were hurried out of the White House after 10 minutes. So having failed to persuade the U.S. Senate or the President of the United States, La Follette took her case back to the American people. She spoke for 63 consecutive days in July and August of 1914 in a tour that included Pennsylvania, Ohio, Indiana, and Michigan. Lesson 14, be strategic. The Senate finally approved the suffrage amendment on June 4, 1919 with La Follette observing from the visitor's gallery. We shed a few tears, she recorded, noting with pride that Wisconsin was the first state to ratify the 19th Amendment. Bob La Follette confided in their children that Wisconsin beat them to it on the suffrage amendment because of your smart mother. <laughs> Belle La Follette, worried that Illinois would, quote, try to steal those first honors, wired representatives in her home state to be sure that Wisconsin would be first. And as soon as the telegram of confirmation was received, reported Bob, I went out onto the floor and had it read into the congressional record. Mama and all of us feel good, you bet. Lesson 15, black lives matter. Bella Follett was widely acknowledged within the African American community nationwide, but especially in Washington, DC, as a, um, a dedicated and fearless leader in the fight for racial equality. Beginning in 1913, she wrote a series of searing articles decrying the efforts of the Wilson administration to racially segregate the federal services. She urged to action her Washington female readers in particular, revisiting her oft-repeated assertion that privileged wives were, quote, not supposed to belong to the 
butterfly, and parasitic class, but should represent the earnest, intelligent womanhood of the nation and fight for equality for all. As La Follette denounced the injustice and violation of democratic principles imposed by the new orders, she skewered the hypocrisy of whites who supported segregation. It seems strange, she observed caustically, that the very ones who consider it a hardship to sit next to a colored person in a streetcar, entrust their children to colored servants, and eat food prepared by colored hands. On January 4, 1914, Bella Follett spoke at the Colored YMCA on 12th Street in Washington, D.C. It was an electrifying event, wild cheering by the 1,000 people present, most of whom were black, interrupted her speech many times. According to the Washington Post, in a front-page story headlined, She Defends Negroes, Wife of Senator LaFollette Denounces Segregation, Says U.S. Government Heirs. LaFollette, quote, advised Negroes to keep up, their, keep up their fight and said there would be no constitution of peace until the question is settled and settled in the right way. An ovation of several minutes followed her remarks. An African-American woman noted the, quote, tremendous effect upon all who heard LaFollette's stirring speech. It is, she reported, the topic which overshadows all others in the black community. She concluded her message of thanks. May God continue to bless you. May he continue to lead you. And may he continue to give you courage to do and to dare. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. LaFollette delivered essentially the same speech to the annual banquet of the NAACP in New York City, offering solutions, not just outrage. Quote, the race issue, like the suffrage question, the sex question, or any other perplexing, unsettled problem disturbing society today, should be freely and seriously discussed in private conversation, in the public press, and from the pulpit. The situation does not call for violence, but it demands determination, loyalty, courage, persistence, unfaltering faith in well-directed efforts, she added that integration was, quote, in no way a matter of social privilege. It is a matter of civil right. 
Lesson 16. Opposition can sting, but support is validating and provides much-needed encouragement. One anonymous writer warned Bella Follett that, quote, for a white lady to address a Negro audience is out of place, adding, it does not raise you very much in the estimation of decent white people. A correspondent from Tennessee denounced La Follette for her, quote, idiotic demands. Other critics exhibited less restraint. One reader termed Belle La Follette disgraceful to the white race and suggested that the only true reason, true reason for her actions was that she was herself black, but, quote, only a little light in color. It was signed a real white person with no black stripes down the back like you. La Follette's efforts also generated support. A white employee of the government printing office and a Civil War veteran concluded his lengthy tribute to his African-American colleagues by addressing La Follette directly. Again, I thank you. The black race needs such as you to aid them, and the white race needs you to bring it to its senses. Navy Department Auditor Ralph Tyler, an organizer for the National Negro Business League, wrote to La Follette that he had read her column, The Color Line, quote, each time with renewed inspiration and with renewed courage because it clearly indicated to me that my race still has good, strong, and eminently fair white friends in this day of threatened segregation, just as we had in the dark days of subjugation before our emancipation. I thank you for your article, and I know I but voice the sentiment of my race in doing so. In 1914, La Follette spoke to a predominantly black audience at the National Trade and Professional School for Women and Girls in Washington, D.C. When she was introduced by African-American activist Her Nanny Helen Burroughs as the successor to Harriet Beecher Stowe, James, lawyer James Hayes bowed his head and said, Amen. Speaking for his race, Hayes told La Follette, We thank God for such a white woman as you. We thank God for sending you to us, and we thank you for coming. A few more like you could awaken the sleeping conscience of the nation. Lesson 17, promote peace always. At the same time she was writing for the Family Magazine, fighting racism, campaigning for women's suffrage, and raising children, Belle LaFollette took up a new cause ultimately becoming one of the most recognized leaders in the crusade for world peace. La Follette widely promoted recognition of war's futility and the practical possibilities of world peace through binding arbitration. Her impassioned advocacy would bring a reign of denunciations, including questions of her patriotism during World War I, but she steadfastly refused to modify or soft-pedal her beliefs. La Follette's argument was that in the, quote, struggle for the balance of power, this idea that war is the only way of settling differences among nations is a survivor of the Dark Ages. On January 10th, 1915, Bella Follett was one of 3,000 women who gathered in Washington, D.C. at a meeting that culminated in the formation of the Women's Peace Party, which four years later became the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Lesson 18, don't be intimidated by the rich, the powerful, or the popular 
if you believe they are in the wrong. Theodore Roosevelt was outraged by pacifism. On April 16, 1915, the Chicago Herald published a scathing assessment of the Women's Peace Party, in which the still enormously popular former president called the party's platform silly and base, influenced by physical cowardice, vague and hysterical, foolish and noxious, an ignoble abandonment of national duty, containing not one particle of good, and which exposes our people to measureless contempt. You get the picture. Belle LaFollette fired back in LaFollette's magazine that Roosevelt assumed, quote, that war is the only means of settling international differences, and moreover, that war is bound to settle them right. History demonstrates that even imperfect and temporary plans of mediation conciliation, and arbitration have been more effective than war in securing justice, and therefore the enlightened and progressive thought of the age should be organized to eradicate the madness of war and be concentrated upon the future settlement of international disputes by an international tribunal. Roosevelt's charge that the party was cowardly and foolish particularly rankled. Was Christ cowardly? She asked, how long did the agitation against human slavery last before it was abolished? To Roosevelt's assertion that by war alone can we acquire those virile qualities necessary to win in the stern strife of actual life, Bella Follett observed, the problem with Mr. Roosevelt is that he is intoxicated with a false idea of war. History, LaFollette urged, showed that people were capable of changing how they coped with disagreements. More enlightened forms of resolution ultimately replaced dueling, for example, which had been considered an honorable way to settle individual differences. In a speech on Peace Day in uh, 1915, LaFollette reminded her listeners that about 70% of the national income went to either paying for past wars or building up arms for future ones. She put this in terms that she felt would most resonate with her audience. What would you think of a housekeeper who was afraid of burglars and who, instead of working to get a communal police organization to protect her home with all the other homes, let her obsession destroy all of her equity and then spent 70% of all the household budget on iron fences and iron doors and high walls that shut out all the light and then she only had 30% of her income left to feed and clothe her children. When the children of this, the woman in this scenario died because of her misallocation of resources, LaFollette asked, wouldn't you consider such housekeeping, such mothering, sheer insanity? Yet that is exactly the kind of housekeeping our great nation is engaged in. LaFollette called for, women's call for peace, LaFollette concluded, is not sentimental rebellion from the, uh, against the inevitable uh, toll of life. It is calm recognition of the utter futility of this method of solving differences between nations. And it gives us today a deep and burning determination to contribute all our powers toward the end of international warfare, to cease the inevitable retardation for the development of humanity and civilization. Lesson 19, put your heart for the long run into what you believe. 
the, the vilification endured by her entire family for the peace activism of herself and her husband during the war years did not curb Belle La Follette's post-war efforts to reject military preparedness, which she denounced as the awful folly of wasting the billions in dollars that should go for education and human betterment. La Follette toured 14 cities in 1921, urging voters to reject any candidate not committed to the reduction of preparedness and arms. When criticized for her efforts, uh, criticized for efforts publicly denounced as futile, if not un-American, La Follette took the long view to counsel others on her side against discouragement. Every effort of this kind is slow in actual results. Democracy, slavery, suffrage. Lesson 20. There's only a few more. Lesson 20. You can make a difference. When La Follette learned that Secretary of State Charles Evan Hughes opened the Washington Naval Conference in 1921 by proposing a 50% reduction of the three great navies of the world, it took her breath away. She was also thrilled when Idaho, Idaho Senator William Bora credited the public opinion that she had been so central in generating as the motivating factor behind Hughes's proposal. The conference resulted in three major treaties and a number of smaller agreements. The most important to La Follette was the Five Power Treaty, which involved the major naval powers, including Britain, the United States, and Japan. La Follette also worked to gain the release of Americans imprisoned for their criticism of their country's role in the war. After La Follette helped obtain the release of socialist and labor leader Eugene V. Debs on Christmas Day of 1921, he hailed her as, quote, a gifted woman of extraordinary vision and understanding, superb moral courage, a deep love of humanity, and a profound sense of obligation to her fellow beings and to the cause of common people. Lesson 21, after a victory, don't rest on your laurels for long. La Follette turned next to military recruitment. In 1923, she spoke in Washington, D.C. before the annual meeting of the American section of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. She criticized the militarist's determination to conflate patriotism with military training. Quote, to read the conspicuous posters and look at the alluring pictures that confront us on the streets, we would think that the Army and Navy offer one long life of gaiety. That same year... She wrote admirably of some of the changes she witnessed firsthand in the newly created Soviet Union. And in 1924, she broke precedent as a political wife by formally campaigning for her husband's final presidential bid. Lesson 22, strategic long-term thinking usually beats knee-jerk reactions. Following the death of Robert La Follette in 1925, a petition circulated among members of the Wisconsin legislature asking Belle La Follette to become a candidate to fill her husband's unexpired term. She could easily have become the first woman senator, but she chose not to run. A petition signed by hundreds of women asked, quote, Dear Mrs. La Follette, will you, can you, turn away from your heritage, your people, your shepherdless flock? 
Those who knew her best thought her refusal to run in favor of her son was a typically shrewd political move. Wisconsin author Zona Gale observed, Bella Follett will stand as one who, ambitious for her husband and sons, was ambitious, first of all, that their ideals of social justice, which were also her ideals, should prevail. According to Phil LaFollett, his mother recognized that her term would be granted more as a tribute to her late husband than as a serious political investment. By virtue of his sex as well as his age, Robert Jr. then would be far more likely than his mother to be repeatedly reelected and could therefore lead the LaFollette progressive movement for years to come further cementing its legacy. With his mother serving as his campaign manager, Robert LaFollette Jr. was indeed elected to the Senate seat, which he would occupy for the next 21 years. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.alegrecare.com. Allegra Home Care serving your community. Lesson 23. Progressive activism is a lifelong commitment. Following her husband's death, LaFollette not only kept the family magazine alive, served as advisor to Robert Jr., as well as her son, Phil, uh, elected in 1930 to the first of three terms um, as Wisconsin's governor, She also continued to advise Wisconsin Congressman James Freer, urging him, remind the folks over and over of the cost of the World War and give them concrete suggestions as to ways and means of preventing another one. Although her husband's biography was her top priority as the nation sank deeper into the Great Depression, she could not resist continuing to campaign for progressive solutions to problems old and new. She denounced Herbert Hoover, for doing too little to alleviate the growing unemployment, publicly criticizing him for being a friend of the power trust. She championed absentee voting, campaigned to save the Children's Bureau, and wrote admiringly of the efforts of Mohandas Gandhi to implement his five-point program in India, particularly his dedication to women's equality with men. Only her death in 1931 brought an end to her activism. So the final lesson is give credit where it's due. Bella Follett deserves recognition for contributing significantly to the political achievements of her husband and sons. But the determination to provide that recognition has obscured the contribution she made in her own right 
to causes of her own choosing, blocking recognition of her full legacy. A closer look reveals an unexpected Bella Follett, a passionate feminist dedicated to peace, civil rights, and making her nation a better place through a variety of innovative reforms. Her life, I believe, offers valuable lessons for today. Thank you. I'd like to remind our radio and online audiences that are listening to Nancy Unger speaking about her book, Belle La Follette, uh, Progressive Era Reformer. And uh, that was a great reintroduction to her. Makes Eleanor Roosevelt look like a lazy bum. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no but I think they're comfortable. Yeah, yeah. So, mm -hmm. time for questions. Someone. Um, I'm just wondering if during your research, did you come across any other women that were kind of in a similar position to Belle or ones that were forgotten or not recognized? Was she just a standalone case or did you uncover more that we should learn about? Oh, there are so many more that we should learn about. I mean, there, and, and even ones that we think we know about, we should learn more about. For example, Belle LaFollette had a, quite a lively conversation with Helen Keller, uh, correspondence. And um, Helen Keller um, was quite a socialist and uh, a La Follette uh, supporter, more radical even than Belle La Follette was. But she's always presented, as she herself said, I'm just, you know, I'm just the, the, the poor blind girl. And she said, whenever I make a political statement, people say, oh, they're just using her. Um, so Helen Keller, who I think is recognized as a great humanitarian and so forth, does not even get the recognition that she deserves. So yeah, there are many, many, many uh, of these women. And uh, it's um, I'm, I'm writing as fast as I can, trying to uh, <laughs> trying to rehabilitate, you know, rehabilitate uh, more of them. A hundred years later, we have the wife of a former president running. How do you contrast and compare that? And what do you think Bell would think about this? Did it happen quickly or slowly? I well, whenever anybody asks me what would the LaFollettes think, it's amazing they always think what I think. Um, <laughs> we're always in, in, in total agreement. So, um, so you have to take my answer with a, with a grain of salt. Um, I, I used to write a regular column for FightingBob.com called, not what would Jesus do, but what would Fighting Bob do? What would he do about this and that? He always did what I thought he should be doing. Um, so, um, but I think that Bella Follett would certainly be sympathetic to um, the problem of being you know, the wife of a politician. Um, and I think that that was one of the things that she clearly had to struggle with. I think she would have been frustrated that it would have taken this long to get to this, to, to this point because she clearly believed in women's leadership. Um, she worked with some really powerful women's leaders, women leaders, including Jane Addams, um, women who you know, knew how to run meetings, do things, get the vote, do all this kind of stuff. So I think, th I think she'd be um, frustrated that it took, that it took so long. Um, but on the other hand, you know, when she finally is able to vote for the first time when she's 61 years old, she's just like, oh, it was, it was worth all that effort. And it was so exciting. She was just so thrilled. So she didn't spend all her time saying, oh, it just took so long. She enjoyed her victories where she could. So is Belle your choice to replace the, be put on the new $20 bill? Actually, I wrote an op-ed nominating Belle for the, for, the, uh, for the $10 bill when that was first, uh, first coming out. I had all kinds of wonderful reasons that you've just heard. Um, I've, I've kind of, well, okay, so now uh, that, that we're settled on this now, right, though? It's, 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 it's done, so yeah. But I, I still think she should be on some future currency. Yeah, yeah. You should tell the audience who 
Junior lost to in the election, and oh. all the United States would be a lot different. Yes, Junior, who ran, who was in the Senate for 21 years, he he just never loved politics the way his his father did. And he was a dutiful son, though. And he he uh, his his younger brother loved politics, but he was too young to run for senator. So, um, but Junior does it. And at one point, he's giving a speech pretty early on, and and somebody from the crowd yells out, "You're not as good as your pa, and you never will be." And he says, no one knows that better than I, my friend. No one knows that better than I. So he hates to campaign, but he does his, all his good due diligence. And, and he's a good senator. Uh, but finally, in, in 46, he just said, I don't want to go back to Wisconsin and campaign. I'm just not going to do it. So he is defeated by Joseph McCarthy. And it's such a terrible story because, of course, it's Joseph McCarthy. Junior has to deal with the fact that he let his father down. Um, he's so upset. He has a lot of health problems, and ultimately he is a suicide. So it's a, it's a very tragic, very tragic story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Wisconsin brings us LaFollette and McCarthy. It brings us all kinds of yin and yang people. Yeah. Next question. Did she have any kind of relationship with Janet Rankin during this period with, of time? With Jeanette Rankin? Yes. You know, I, I know she must have admired Jeanette Rankin, who was the first woman to be in Congress, and uh, she got elected right before the vote on World War I, and she voted against it. And her, her home state was so embarrassed, they quickly got rid of her as soon as they possibly could. And she, yeah, she got back in right on the eve of World War II. She was the only vote against World War II. Her home state of Montana is so embarrassed they get rid of her again. During the Vietnam War, the Jeanette Rankin Brigade is protesting in the streets with Jeanette Rankin in her 90s there. But your question is, uh, I, I don't see a lot of correspondence uh, between, um, between Rankin and, uh, and La Follette, but they certainly were on the same, same page as far as war is concerned. Yeah. It's interesting how she, she went for so many different issues. Yes. All of which all of which cause you problems. I mean, she must have been by the time she was finished in the smallest circle of of, of uh, mutual friends, you know, that would were in favor of all of those things. She that was why I nominated her for the back when it was the ten dollar bill, because I said many people work out of self interest. You know, it certainly makes sense that a woman would work for women's suffrage. But for a white woman to work for you know, rights for blacks, to me, was made her truly a, a great American, that, that she had, you know, this wide range of things. And I think that's one of the things that makes her so particularly important. So toward the end of her life, do you have any insight how she felt her life was, her contributions? Was she pleased? Would she always do more? She's never pleased. She's the most <laughs> humorless person I've ever come across. <laughs> She is, um, and her family is always saying, for God's sake, her kids, you know, mom, lighten up. You know, take a, take a break. Maybe, maybe kick back a little bit. Um, and she just cannot do it. She can't do it. Life is a serious business. And I think one of the reasons that she has such a strong marriage with Bob LaFollette is though he's a very serious and important reformer, he has a great sense of humor. And she says, he makes me laugh. Um, because she just, uh, life was just too serious. And it's also sad to me that this woman was painfully shy. She did not like to speak publicly. And uh, she, she writes to her daughter when she's in her 50s, oh, this is still just so difficult for me. She had to make herself do these things, but she did them. 
there are a few of us who are still in that family and very happy to be here and hear your wonderful book. But the expression in the family was that Bob knew how to fight, but Belle knew when. Ah, <laughs> that's very interesting. Well, she certainly, there are times when he's opposing U.S. entry into World War I, he, he, this is really hard for him, and he's getting just absolutely vilified. And Junior is there kind of helping him out, and Junior writes to Belle and says, you need to come now. Dad needs you now. You know, if, if you're going you're gonna to make him do this, you better be here. And, uh, and so she's not very happy about it, but, uh, but she goes, and she's, she's, she is often pushing him. And, of course, she has the advantage. She doesn't have to worry about getting reelected. You know, nobody's going to try to, you know, push her out of the Senate. So she sort of has the, the luxury of truly being as radical. But she also says, you know, she is more radical than, than he is. What was going on in Wisconsin politics at the time that he kept being reelected to the Senate when he was so vilified nationally? That, was, that must have been a little unusual because, the, as you said, the, the, women who voted against, the woman who voted against Janet Rank, mm -hmm. she didn't get reelected. Well, she hadn't been in, in the Senate for you know, as long as he had. And yeah. LaFollette had you know, a very, very faithful, loyal following in Wisconsin, which has a large German population at that time. There were a number of factors that kept it going. But they also had that, you know, Bob speaks for us. He is not, he's not afraid to take an unpopular stance. So they, he really had the, the tremendously loyal following. And I think that's part of the reason that Junior stayed in for so long. Um, I know, you know, he, not that he was, he was a good senator, but a lot of it was just there was a tremendous loyalty to the LaFollette. The feeling about the LaFollettes was that they were there for the people of Wisconsin. They represented them, and they were really very much uh, beloved. Although, let me just finish up. Um, at the University of Wisconsin, which there was their, you know, school and so forth, Bob LaFollette's, during World War I, his picture is taken down. Um, the all but three members of the University of Wisconsin faculty uh, signed a petition uh, saying how disappointed they were. I mean, it wasn't like he had the unified state of the support. There were a lot, of, it did create a lot of controversy. There was talk of um, uh, ejecting him from the, from the Senate. I mean, it was, it was very difficult. It was uh, the, the whole family, I mean, he was burned in effigy in a number of places, um, spat upon on a streetcar. Um, so it was. It wasn't like oh, everybody's behind us and it's not a problem. But uh, but you're right that he did continue to be uh, reelected even even with that. Thank you so much for for expanding our knowledge about this and our history. A little factual point: Where did she get the financial resources to do all of this? You know, the publication, the travel. Well, this is a, this was a real sore spot with her. Um, she, she got the, uh, the money to go to college because her parents saved and saved and saved as farmers. This was really important. But after that, um, for example, the magazine, she hated that magazine because they were forever in debt. The one thing that she, where she was really comfortable was their home. They had a farm that they, they spent a pretty good chunk of money to buy this, to buy this farm with some money that Bob LaFollette had inherited. And, um, and they sold the family farm and they bought this house. They mortgaged the house to buy this magazine that she hated. And then Bob always said, oh, I'm too busy to write for it. And so she ended up doing all of this, this writing. And she said, I told you this was going to happen. Um, so she's very unhappy about that. It is not until Bob LaFollette dies that she is, for the first time in her life, debt-free. He is forever saying, oh, well, no, we'll just pay. 
Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.